Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. They were just going, they were going all out to sort of kill everybody, obliterate everybody in their path. So it was, it was an existential threat uh, to my beloveds, to my loved ones, to my family. Uh, it wasn't a war that belonged elsewhere and I was going to cover as a journalist. Uh, and, you know, when we're talking about war and combat, distances are really uh, important. Um, in a place like Afghanistan, you know, distances might be near, but because of the geography, that nearness actually is quite can be quite far. You know, it's, it's difficult to get from A to B in many instances. But in the case of uh, ISIS in Iraq, um, they were literally, you know, on the, on, on the border, they were, you know, as the crow flies from Iran to, from Tehran to Baghdad, for instance, it's not that far. It's like, it's not even from like from Boston to Washington, DC. That's not a, that's not a long, large distance. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Today is a big day for the show, an episode I am super excited for, because today I have Salar Abdo talking about his most recent novel, Out of Mesopotamia. Salar uh, was born in Iran and splits his time between Tehran and New York City. He's the author of the novels Tehran at Twilight, the Poet Game, and Opium, and he is the editor of Tehran Noor. He teaches in the MFA program at the City College of New York, uh, the MFA program that I went to. Uh, his latest novel we're talking about today, Out of Mesopotamia, but he also has another one on the way uh, out this November called In a Nearby Country Called Love. Salar, how are you doing today? It's a pleasure to be with you, AJ, um, my former graduate students a fantastic writer oh, whose pieces I worked on, uh, whom I saw win one of the big awards at City College Writing at the end of the year. So it's a special pleasure of all the interviews I've done to be on this particular show with you. Thank you so much for saying that. And the pleasure is all mine. So, you know, you were uh, my mentor, my friend, one of my favorite writers, and I actually, I told you about, we were having coffee and I told you about this podcast and this show before I had even started it. And I really wanted to, I really wanted to ask you on like as back then, but I was like, no, oh, he's just going to, he'll pity me. He'll come on. But like, you know, there's, there's, you know, I don't want to ask too much of him. And so now we're like 30 episodes in and um, here, here you are on my show. So thank you. 
Thank, thank you. It's lovely, and it's lovely to work with you. And also, I want everyone to know that you're also the creator of my website. <laughs> yeah, there's there's many talents coming from the the Warbucks Podcast Studio, one of which is building websites. Um, so yeah, so check out solarabdo.com too, um, all you people out there. So yeah, so your your book. Out of Mesopotamia, which I really loved, and I talked to several people. I just had Phil Clay on the show. He also was talking to me about how much he really loved your book. It's gotten a lot of praise. One of the questions that uh, I like authors to start out answering is, in your own words, um, could you just tell us what is your book about? Sure. First of all, I'll quickly, because you mentioned Phil Clay, uh, He's also one of my favorite authors. Uh, I consider him a friend, and uh, uh, I'm glad he came on your show. And uh, I'll take it from there. Out of Mesopotamia is basically about a man who finds himself, a, a journalist who, who who gets sucked in to the to this situation of combat and war and sort of crosses that line of being a journalist. He's no longer a journalist. You know, he has to pick up a gun and actually... And then at the same time, he's living these other lives back home, you know, as a occasional writer of art, 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 art writer, theater writer, cinema writer. And how... So the book is really about war and combat, but more importantly, how war and combat manifests itself in the 21st century. When the whole geography uh, of the Middle East started to change right around 2014, because uh, the entity called ISIS uh, started to uh, occupy large swaths of Syria during their civil war, and then they like a juggernaut, they came into northern Iraq and very, very fast, very quickly, they were at the gates of Baghdad and moving south. And uh, at that time, <clears throat> I'm always sort of engaged with, uh, for many years now, with war documentarians and war photographers and just the neighborhood of the Middle East is so <clears throat> caught up in war in one way or another, whether it's to the east of Iran, in Afghanistan, or to the west in Iraq, and also other places. I've, also, I've always sort of been involved in combat-related things in one way or another. And uh, in 2014, I uh, was with a war documentarian friend and colleague of mine and we were in uh, southern Iraq and at that time there was a real fear of ISIS simply taking over all of Mesopotamia and uh, it's hard for somebody who has not been there and doesn't know that geography to understand the gravity of the situation and how that would have changed the entire situation of the world uh, but you know there were pockets of isis as far south 
has the lakes around Karbala, which is quite a bit south. And uh, there was no uh, real, uh, there was no real uh, opposition to them. The Iraqi army was in absolute disarray. <clears throat> and uh, the Shiite militias uh, had not been formed yet to stand their ground. And so in the middle of this chaos, I found myself in southern Iraq. And uh, there were several factors at this point. One was I started, I realized that this is really a fight for survival because the ISIS uh, terminology and their, uh, their way of thinking about many groups, including uh, the Persians, the Iranians, which is where my home is much of the time, alongside the United States, was they were just going, they were going all out to sort of kill everybody, obliterate everybody in their path. So it was, it was an existential threat uh, to my beloveds, to my loved ones, to my family. Uh, it wasn't a war that belonged elsewhere and I was going to cover as a journalist. Uh, and, you know, when we're talking about war and combat, distances are really uh, important. Um, in a place like Afghanistan, you know, distances might be near, but because of the geography, that nearness actually is quite, can be quite far. You know, it's, it's difficult to get from A to B in many instances. But in the case of uh, ISIS in Iraq, um, they were literally, you know, on the, on, on the border, they were, you know, as the crow flies from Iran to, from Tehran to Baghdad, for instance, it's not that far. It's like, it's not even from, like, from Boston to Washington, D.C. That's not a, that's not a long, large distance. And um, so I became involved in it in a very personal way. But, and then um, I, on, I, I started to wonder and I started, you know, I, I'd been, you know, Tehran at twilight was also about war, in many ways was about war reporting and uh, fixers and things like that. So I, I knew that world. And uh, not to make a big issue of this or be too critical, but, you know, when when you're in a situation, when you're in inside the cauldron of a war, and things are happening. And then you read journalists, reporters reporting on the war. Uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you're really disappointed. You know, you, you, you know, you, you kind of, you being in it, you see them as like sort of <laughs> uh, armchair or Friday or Monday or whatever. Uh, witnesses, that, and you, you begin to see that a lot of times uh, they don't quite know what they're talking about or they're going after uh, things that they've already made their minds up. So if you go, let's say you've made up your mind on, let's say the Shiite militias, that they're evil. It's easy to then uh, 
find examples of evil being done by certain uh, sub-branches of those militias. And then, you know, you can sort of uh, <clears throat> fashion your report based on that. And because I had become engaged with these militias, because they really were the only things standing in the way of ISIS at that time before the Iraqi army sort of got 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 its feet together and the Americans started to help. I realized these these are human beings. These they have families. Some of them are my friends. I go to their homes. They have children. They're capable of love. They cry when their brothers in arms die. They grieve. Uh, they have mercy, and sometimes they have unbelievable cruelty out of anger or wrath or revenge or whatever. No, human beings are not one thing. They're not cardboard. Question I was going to ask, you know, how does, how does one join up with a Shia militia to do book research? Because you were on the ground, you know, with, yeah. with these guys. <laughs> how, how does that happen? Recently, um, a, a, a reporter out of Beirut who uh, reports for one of the big new newspapers in the USA wrote me and said, you know, Salar, you, um, I read your book. I ran into it in, in Beirut. I, I read it. You weren't very kind to us reporters. We did want to join up with the Shiite militias, but they just wouldn't let us in. Well, you know, for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to really go into because not because it's a secret, it's just not that important or interesting. But being from where I was from and the work I've been doing, I had an in with these guys and everybody else, you know, Western reporters were hanging out with the Kurds uh, and with other elements, you know, uh, that were supported with, from, with Western powers. So. So I had that in, first of all. And then also, you know, sort of being drawn into this, these worlds uh, for a number of reasons. I also wanted to be in the places that nobody can get to and nobody can, uh, will be allowed into. You know, I wanted to be in those places that nobody else has, you know, like, the ends of the earth, right? You know, just because, and this war was, uh, you know, was, and I talk about it in the book. This was was very chaotic. I mean, it was very, you know, I mean, among the, these militias, some of them are vastly experienced because they've known one war after another, but many of them are not experienced at all, and the age range is insane. You know, it goes from you know, fifteen to eighty. You know, and then you find yourself in the middle of this uh, madness in a geography that's very dangerous and also somewhat uh, and completely unprofessional in many ways. You know, this is not, you know, like special forces, whatever. Um, but with a lot of uh, weaponry um, and, a, and a lot of danger and and uh, the combat situations very, very close at times. Uh, just to give, uh, not to make this too long, but just to give a like a comparison. <clears throat> Last year, exactly this time, I was in the Ukraine, 
and uh, I was in all the fronts in the Ukraine, and it was at a time where everything was at a standstill, and it was just the battles of rockets, right? You know, like there was not that proximity. Uh, even in Bakhmut, uh, where I was, it was, you know, it was from distance. But in northern Iraq, where I found myself, you know, like you could hear, you could hear these guys. Um, and I sort of begin that, the book that way, you know, you can hear the, the guy who wants to kill you, you know, rousing himself with his Allah Akbar, God is great. And that you really, the, the war in Ukraine puts one kind of chill in your bones, but that other war puts another kind of chill in your bones. The qualities are very different. So for all of these reasons, I ended up in Iraq, Syria at that time. So if this, if we were going to put a a label, I guess if you want to call it that, on um, this conflict that your book is about, it's, I mean, it, maybe like the war against ISIS or whatever, but ISIS is who the Shia militia militias are fighting, correct? ISIS were, were the, the Shia militias were fighting against ISIS. At, at some point when the stand against ISIS crystallized, other elements were uh, also in play. For instance, uh, these militias were getting sort of indirect American air power support at that time too. Uh, and, you know, we would see them and we would, you know, run into each other at the convoys and whatever. So it was a, like a, it was a real toss-up of all of these forces that are sort of enemies, but for, for the time being, they're not enemies. And because there's this other enemy that's like very vastly dangerous, but we don't really know how they came about. And all of us, each side has their own theories about how ISIS came about. So it was, it was interesting. But just to um, summarize it, I was interested in going behind the headlines. Like when you read about the war in the Middle East, the civil wars in the Middle East, and the militias, who are these people? Because you read, you know, in the newspaper or on CNN or whatever, there's just a belief, and you think, oh, these these people must must you know, they must come out of the caves or they must be absolutely brutal. And I was interested, besides writing about war itself and the characters, because it's not only a war book about war. He is in and out of combat. He goes home, he does other things. But I wanted to give a face, a real face and interiority to these people and also, also write about why people go to war voluntarily and why they are voluntarily even trying to get martyred. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about some of these people. First, you just mentioned the main character of your book. Um, well, you alluded to him, Sala. What, what kind of person is Sala in your book? What kind of character is Sala? Sala, as you can see, I try. I didn't bother to change his name too much from my name. But <laughs> my my name, my first name, is a pure Persian name, and Sala is an Arabic name. And uh, my Arab friends often call me Sala because it's hard for them to roll my name in in Arabic language too often. 
So I just chose that. When I first started all this, my idea was to write a, actually a nonfiction book about the civil wars in the Middle East. And um, I was, you know, I had, I had many balls in the air at that time. I was teaching in New York. I was uh, working on screenplays in Tehran. I was writing art, art reviews in Tehran. I was uh, writing essays about the wars. I was publishing my books. So I was, I, you know, I was jack of several trades. And this, this was cause for me tr to travel a lot. And, uh, you know, I have an essay uh, where I talk about, um, you know, uh, and this was typical. It, it was not uh, like a rare, unique occasion where um, I would, uh, I, I would, you know, be in a forward trench in northern Iraq. I would catch a plane from uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, Erbil, uh, arrive at John F. Kennedy Airport uh, immediately, take a cab, go to the City College of New York to get there in time to teach my graduate course uh, in, in fiction workshop. You know, and uh, that uh, the you know these multiplicity of worlds that I was living in, or for instance, you know, I would be in a forward trench. I would you know I would go with a convoy back to back that catch a plane to Tehran, all within a few hours. And you know, Tehran is quite a cosmopolitan city actually. And, you know, there's there's a big cafe culture. So I would be, I would go from a forward trench to, you know, to one of the, you know, hip, hipster cafes in Tehran where my writer friends who had no idea what's going on in the Middle East and they don't care at all. And I found myself um, sort of, first of all, I found myself quite angry a lot of the times, angry at the whole world and at my friends who didn't care. And uh, I started to think about some of, for instance, American war writers of the past, especially the Vietnam vets. And I, I started to feel what they like, felt. Like I'd read about it, theoretically I knew it, but now I really felt how it feels to come from, you know, a place like that and be with people who are absolutely oblivious about what's going on around the corner from them, not thousands of miles away. And I started to understand what American soldiers feel who come from these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, uh, you know, they come back to a country that on the surface, you know, supports them and all those ribbons and stuff. But the country really is clueless about what these guys have been through. And uh, it's interesting that some of my most closest readers and supporters of out of Mesopotamia have turned out in these past few years to be actually American vets. People like Phil Clay and other people who've read this book. But so I started with nonfiction, but in my mind, but I, I realized that my, my, my life was too chaotic. I would say somewhat insane. And I just could not 
could not fit that insanity into the straitjacket of nonfiction. It just wasn't possible because as tragic as war can be and all of that, it can be also absolutely absurd and very funny. Okay, you're in very in crazy situations. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll put it all into a fiction book and uh, that will allow me also to treat all of the characters I have uh, and Salah himself uh, in the ways that are not too far removed from my own life. And yet I can take one step away and just sort of bring it all together. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> speaking of kind of the the absurdity of what what goes on in your book, a big theme is martyrdom, which I think is probably where we see the most absurdity. Talk about well, one. I, I'm actually I'm curious about the role that that martyrdom plays within Iranian society. Um, so I'm I'm curious about that, but. But then talk a little bit about martyr, martyrdom in your book and, and why you wrote it the way you did. Martyrdom is very interesting. Um, uh, as we talk right, right this day, today, it is like the, I believe they're the two biggest days of Shiite ceremonies in the world of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, uh, Shiism the Shi'is branch of Islam uh, is gets its very raison d'etre, its very reason for being via the channel of martyrdom. Shi'ism begins with the martyrdom of Imam Hussein 1400 odd years ago. So, uh, and I won't get into the specifics of that, it's just a whole other but so it's it's a part of the culture of, it's a part of the culture of becoming a martyr and sort of uh, putting that on a pedestal it doesn't mean that everybody in places like Iran and other countries where there's a big Shiite minority or majority that you know everybody's sitting around waiting to be martyred but it is certainly within my milieu of intellectuals in Iran, <laughs> they want to have nothing to do with that. But uh, it is a big part of the culture, it's, and it always has been. And uh, when I began to make my journeys to, to, uh, uh, to the geographies of war in uh, Iraq and Syria, and uh, I, would, uh, I was with the Arab contingents most of the time, but I would run into pockets of Iranian uh, volunteers too. Uh, the Iranian volunteers, I mean, uh, the, the reports by some of the most important newspapers in America will tell you that the Islamic Republic of Iran was just bussing these people, you know, over there, blah, blah, paying them. But I was there, I saw with my own eyes. A lot of these guys 
were not getting paid a cent to be there. They were selling the shirts off their back to come to these geographies and fight for what they call the holy places, right? Because ISIS was basically going around and blowing up every Christian or Shiite or Yazidi or whatever uh, holy site and, uh, you know, uh, abusing those people. So these people, and I became, you know, I was fascinated, you know, what causes a young man and sometimes not not so young <clears throat> to just get up, you know, leave everything, sell everything, and and come to, you know, come to Baghdad, end up in a place like Samara or something, and wait to wait for a convoy to accept him, for a militia to accept him to go to battle and most probably die. I mean, I. It's just that's a that's spellbinding, you know. You you just can't you you cannot compare it to anything else that happens in life. And um, I started to spend a lot of time with these with these men. And these are all people who they they're there for no other reason than they're seeking martyrdom. I talk about it in the book. And like the recent short story that I also have talks about it too. I would say a great majority of them went there for to actually, you know, fight to keep that entity called ISIS from doing all the things it was doing. If they were martyred in the in the in the act, uh, so be it. If they weren't, fine. And then there were others, and this happens, I've seen it in other situations, similar situations, who were there, who were there, they just wanted to gain a bit of glory, come back and say, I was there, I, I went there, did that, and then use that, get some mileage out of it. You had all kinds, right? And I became interested in that too, like who is a genuine would-be martyr, who is acting, um, and who is a real fighter, and who is a coward even. And uh, that in itself became a study that, that, that began to fascinate me. And the ways it manifested, manifested itself in everyday life, you know, like how you conduct yourself in a forward trench where your enemy is basically um, does not care at all if they die or not. So they're sort of into the whole martyrdom thing as well in a, in a, via a different channel, right? But, you know, imagine you're sitting in a forward trench and uh, this Toyota van filled to the till with ammo with uh, incendiaries is coming at you full force. It's, uh, there's nothing more scary in existence because those things are not easy to, to hit. They might seem easy if you're watching it on video from, you know, in a, on television or something, but that, and also, even if it were easy to hit, which is not, 
to stand your ground and to actually take that aim, knowing that even if it's not a Toyota van or whatever, it's just one of these guys gets into the trench. This was a very, in many ways, some of these wars of the Middle East, like the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, some of them are very, they hark back to World War One. you know, like what happens if one of, one of these guys manage to, manages to throw themselves into the, what they call the Sata, the Arabs call this forward trench, 40 guys are blown up. You have no chance, you have no chance. So. Who is, who is, you know, who, who is who in, in these, in this uh, group of people? Who, who is, who walks the walk and talks the talk, you know? And that, you know, for a writer, you know, these are the material that, not just war novels, any novel, right? You, you want to know what makes these guys tick. Yeah. Well, when you were just talking, I was reminded just like thinking about ISIS and like the types of people it's I, it is important to note that, you know, I guess they too were seeking martyrdom in a lot of situations. So you've got a whole battlefield of people who are just trying to become martyrs. Um, I remember talking to an Iraqi friend when uh, ISIS invaded Iraq from Syria and we were talking about how like the Iraqi army collapsed and Iraqi friend is like, you don't understand. Like, these guys, like they talking about ISIS, like they want to die. Like they're like they're they're running right at you, like in the hope of um, you know becoming martyrs and blowing something up. And he's like, I don't blame the Iraqi army at all. It, it was a very complicated episode of history, but I think it's important to keep in mind kind of how suicidal that um, that I, ISIS often was. Absolutely. So this is what, this was the scenario. The Iraqi army collapsed like, immediately. <clears throat> it was in absolute disarray. The only group of people uh, who could, you know, face these guys head on were the Shiite militias. There was nobody else. So when Ayatollah Sistani, the Grand Ayatollah of actually the entire Shiite world, not just Iraq, um, gave his fatwa that, you know, you guys need to go and stand against this. At that point, when he gave that fatwa, all these Shiite men across Iraq, you know, at that point, they, they had their marching orders. And the person who sort of... Uh, did the management of this because you know war combat is all about logistics you know you might you might have all the <clears throat> uh, passion in the world to fight or be a martyr but if you don't have logistics if you don't have water if you don't have food if you don't have gasoline to get from a to b the person uh, who did this uh, was Qasem Soleimani the the supreme commander of the Iranian forces and the, the commander of the special boats force uh, uh, of Iran, who was assassinated in Baghdad by American drones in 2020. So he uh, he was the person who actually ordered, and I was there, I, I saw it, 
in 2014, when all of this was just starting, I would talk to the Iraqis and they would say, basically, the Iraqi army had collapsed. They would say, Qasem Soleimani will take care of it. Like that was the general, that was the general. And he took care of it. But, um, but it was very, it was a close call. I think it was a close call. You know, no matter what people think about if so-and-so is a good person or an evil person, I mean, I've read or heard General Patriots, an extremely capable uh, American general who called Qasem Soleimani something like the cop, you know, the personification of evil, like whatever, whatever anybody uh, thinks of this person or that person. I was there to see that without without his management of the situation and, and the people he worked with, uh, it would have been a very, very bad Middle East. Um, and so the Americans and the other forces, Shia forces, were sort of work, sort of working with with each other. And then, of course, when uh, uh, as soon as uh, that thing was or that episode in history was over, and uh, Mr. Trump became president, immediately uh, stamped these militias as terrorists. Terrorists, so you know the irony of it all, and you know what what people do, what governments do, based on what suits them, what's convenient at the time. Yeah, I marked a paragraph or two in your book that I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading. Blame seemed to be going around today. Everyone drank their tea and said God's name too many times. The Americans were always the object of derision in these conversations, their occasional air support for us questionable at best. On the surface, we were fighting on the same side for a change and against an enemy that wanted the earth itself to be gone. Over at places like Palmyra in Syria and Mosul, down the road from us, the enemy had gone on orgies of destruction of all things ancient afterward gloating in their sick cruelty over priceless historical stones that could not fight or talk back. No wonder then that in the mock-up and up and down all the satyrs of the war, we quietly saw ourselves as the soldiers of civilization, even if no one else believed us or gave a shit. It was not something that was talked about, but it was there in the air of every minor battle and in the newscasts out of Iraq, too, this was Nineveh, after all, the ancient capital of the Assyrians, the Nineveh of the Bible and the vast 2,700-year-old stone tablet library had once held. We were certain we were fighting with something bigger than just Mesopotamia, and we were eating the bullets that the Americans, who despised our skin and our faces and our weapons, should have been eating right alongside us. The Americans saw us as rodents, and we saw them as a hollow Goliath. They laughed at our poetry and queer dancing in the middle of war while we wept and held wakes after their friendly fires that killed our brothers. I wonder if anything, anything at all, could ever bridge these suspicions. I wondered if the so-called friendly fire that had killed the three Magi 
have not only been the Americans, but also thoroughly calculated. Still, even if we were to find out the truth about the murder of our boys, what then, what could we do with that information? Not much, but gradually come to think of them, the Americans, as entities beyond the realm of touch or comprehension. Now and then, we would run into their convoys on the Trump roads of Iraq. We pass one another like ghosts in the afternoon. Their equipment and vehicles had the feel of high walls with no human beings visible, visible from our vantage. They were extraterrestrials to us, here but not quite here. And sometimes I ask myself if we too were not just as invisible to them. Thank you for reading that. I wanted, I wanted you to first... I love that passage because it's so interesting to me to to hear what the perspective is in a war zone when it comes to Americans, especially in a situation where it's it's so incredibly murky who is on whose side, uh, because you've got the Shia militias who are fighting ISIS, you've got the Americans who are fighting ISIS, but the Shia militias and the Americans are obviously not... You know, they're not allies in the traditional sense. They're not the best of mates, no. Well, talk about then from your experiences on the field, talk a little bit about this kind of weird relationship between the Americans on the battlefield and the Shia militias. Well, the twain never actually came together, right? You know, like the Americans... The Americans and advisors did did work with you know the regular Iraqi army, especially with some of their so-called special operations forces. Uh, so it was sort of a distant uh, uh, lack of trust, right? And uh, but at the same time, uh, what's interesting about America is that. And I've seen it so many times in so many places that there is a love and hate, right? You know, like a lot of these guys, given the opportunity, <laughs> they would jump at the opportunity to come come here to be in America. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there is that uh, sense that, that there is this entity that has no... Uh, has no real understanding of what anything is, the stakes, the situations. I mean, in my new book, A Nearby Country Called Love, I have a passage with this Afghan uh, refugee to Iran, and I've met many of these guys, and he talks about how an American uh, vehicle in in Kabul runs over his uh, son, and somebody jumps out of the convoy and for his loss gives him a hundred bucks, you know, like, you know, there, there are many reasons why uh, people in the world think one way or another about Americans. But uh, so I can't tell you uh, if, it, if, if it was like just raw hatred or pretend raw hatred, because you see that a lot too, right? I ran, I ran into people over there who, I don't know, they had 
Canadian, they, they come from Canada, the Canadian citizenship. You know, some Iraqi guy from Canada can with his sons and to just fight ISIS and then go back to Canada, you know, just <laughs> hop in and hop out. You know, like it was very, it's very, uh, and also, you know, I, I hung out with the Kurdish militias a lot and with the Kurds. Um, and the Shiites and the Kurds do not like each other at all, right? And but I, I hang out with the Kurds, and even within them, there are different factions, right? There are factions that are supported by Iran, and there are factions that are absolutely despise the Iranians. And but America is just is this force. It's like you know, I, I think of it as these science fiction uh, films, right? Is something that's out there, and I think in the passage I read, probably it gives the feeling better than anything I can come up with on, off the cuff. Is that you know you would see them, you would see the Americans, but it's as if they're there and they're not quite there, right? You know, the convoy passing in the afternoon. You you couldn't even see like personnel in these convoys. Right? They're high up, right? And it's that feeling. I think in the in the world in general, there's a lot of misunderstanding about Americans. There's a there's a knee jerk American uh, uh, hatred, even, but it's done in order to again get mileage amongst your own milieu, perhaps, but. At the end of the day, when it comes right down to it, uh, for all the mistakes, there's a lot of generosity. Uh, and he talks, Saleh talks about the generosity of the Americans and their occasional stinginess. Like, you, you don't quite, you know, Saleh, and then in, later in the novel, when that Frenchman comes and they talk about Americans, even the Frenchman doesn't quite know what to make of Americans, even though you know his family is there. It's like it, it really is. It's like an appreciation, but also a turn turn off. And I think a lot of the world has that relationship with America because America just casts such a huge shadow uh, over the world, even today, even when they talk about. China and multiplicity of world powers and stuff, but just culturally, America casts such a huge shadow, and I see it amongst my, you know, my own milieu in Iran. The intellectuals, the artists, you know, they read, they try to be hip on the latest American authors. I mean, they read people I don't even know who they are. So you know that that just sort of permeates. All of, all of uh, that, those geographies, and so what happens that all of the reactions to the United States are exaggerated or over-exaggerated. You know, love is exaggerated, hatred is exaggerated, and there's a, quite a bit of acting too, because that acting can actually score points for you. You know, you can be in a situation where if you show, you know, your uh, your uh, dislike or despising of America. You know, you will have 
score points for whatever reason and you may not quite believe that so there's all of that it's very you know dealing with america is very is a very complicated thing much more complicated let's say than with china or russia or things like that those are those are much there's much far fewer layers to that than dealing with americans yeah that's interesting you say that. I'm I'm reminded of uh, when I was right out of college, I went to live in Jordan, and there was a, an Iraqi man, really, really nice guy, friend of a friend, who was helping me find an apartment. And every time he would introduce me to somebody, he'd be like, look, like I'm an Iraqi and he's an American. Isn't that so funny? And I didn't get it for the longest time. I was like, what is he talking about? And then like the more like we talked, like he's, you know, America invaded and destroyed his country. And to me, in like my sheltered, you know, Midwestern lifestyle, you know, people had had never really thought about, you know, Iraqis as the enemy. But in Iraq, Americans were definitely thought of as the enemy. And it was it was such a, a strange moment for me to have to, to put myself in 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 his place. Absolutely. I wonder. So you know exactly the, the thing I'm talking about. It, yeah. It's a very complicated relationship that people have with America, much more so than I think any other country on earth. I wonder for you, as somebody who lives in both Tehran and New York City, is that a difficult? How difficult is is that that line for you to walk when you're with like these Shia militias? Is 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 it complex for you? Absolutely, it's 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 very complex, and uh, you have to. Uh, first of all, you have to sort of bite the bullet, so to speak, and be ready to be absolutely crushed or worse. Right, like things can happen because in in these geographies, it's not just about negotiating your Americanness or your Persianness, but also within these geographies, there's so many antagonisms and um, enmities, right? I, I, I gave an interview in Tehran last winter, and you know, my name, Solar, first name, is a name that many Kurds have, like many Kurds have my name. More Kurds have my name than Persians have my name. So in Iraq, being with Shia militias, they would often think I'm Kurdish, and immediately that would create some sort of a, you know, they would question me, and other things happen that I won't get into. But you know, uh, so I was, I was, you know, like I and people like me walk that fine line all of the time, but particularly between, I think, the United States and Iran, it's been a particularly poignant, acute uh, uh, situation for over four decades now, right? And um, I remember when I was a child in Iran, America was such an enormous presence in that country, right? You know, American military advisors, all of the American... Uh, uh, arms, arms companies were there. Um, there were American schools. I myself this is obviously pre nineteen seventy nine. 
Yeah, and as yeah. a child, I grew up in a, in an ambience where uh, you know I I had contact with them all the time. So uh, and then uh, all of that was gone like overnight, and it was replaced by this uh, this terrible uh, uh, enmity between between the two. You know, the hostage crisis and all of that. And I think what happened was the Islamic Republic sort of backed itself into a corner, right? Because American, uh, America bashing became a point of the revolution, like one of the pillars of the revolution became that. And long after, not many people believed in that anymore. They, you know, it's like the hijab now, they think like, if the hijab is gone, our revolution is finished. Well, the hijab is sort of gone between a lot of women. Everything's fine. Uh, but that uh, that uh, that became one of the pillars. Like America bashing became a pillar, the flag burning of America. And for people like me, and so after the revolution, so many Persians left. He came to America and other countries, Europe, Australia, wherever. And... Uh, you know, for those of us who, and many didn't never went back, and many go back not very regularly, but I really live in these places. And for me, uh, it's, uh, it's it, it can get sort of lonely uh, because you can feel like you don't belong to either place, but at the same time, you deeply belong to both places. I mean, in many ways, I'm much more comfortable in the United States. Uh, I listen to a lot of Americana music. I know that the country Western, you know, the classic country Western musicians. Uh, uh, it's it's a, it's it's in, it's not only my world, but it's my heart, right? And then I go to somewhere like Iran, and I'm driving down the highway, you know, going from one, you know, and I'm listening to, I don't know, to uh, Hank Williams or something, you know, on these long distances that, that are very much reminiscent of the southwest of the United States. And it, it gets you somewhere, right? It gets you somewhere deep here. And you think, you know, us human beings, it's so easy to actually be brothers and sisters. And it's as easy not to be, right? And then how that translates itself in combat and war is very similar, but it's just all of that is uh, condensed into shorter periods. Like you might know somebody only for a week, and this has happened to me many times. You might be in a situation where you know somebody only for a week in a combat situation, but that person becomes such a huge uh reality of your life, you know, you're eating, sleeping, keeping watch, being engaged with, you know, the enemy all at the same time. And you might not even speak the same language very well, you know, like my Arabic is not that great. So, but, you know, once you bid goodbye, or of course, if one of you dies, you know, it's like, it takes a, it takes a heart out of you. Just, you know, and I sometimes think, I, I just wish, you know, Americans, 
here on you know, square where they could just be thrown together in these condensed situations. And that's why, you know, like when the devil called like the cobble fall this last time around happened, you saw so many American vets um, really going out of their way to to get their um, Afghan brethren with whom, you know, they've worked in special operations and stuff out of there because there's something to be said about just being with someone, I don't know, in a trench, you know, in a, in a barrack, you know, two feet away, in, you know, inside or whatever. And, you know, it changes you. And I think when you don't have that, it's easy to, and the things I'm saying are very basic. Everyone knows that, but I think what, if there's anything that's positive, it's strange to say about war is that it reminds you of brotherhood or humanhood, I would call it, that it doesn't matter uh, who you are, where you're from. And that's why, again, I go back to saying that even though I wrote this book and it's from the vantage point of these, this Iranian guy, uh, but the people who read me most closely, who have blurred me most uh, uh, graciously and generously, have all of them have been American veterans of these these specific wars. That's so interesting. I wonder what's the the Iranian veteran experience. I'm curious about it because you do write about these you know, some of the characters in your book who show up on the battlefield, they, they maybe they fought in the Iran-Iraq war, you know, maybe they have other experience in other conflicts, but just thinking about vets in Iran today, I don't, I'm not sure even how to really ask this question, but what, what's, what's the veteran experience like today in, in 2023 in Iran? Recently, somebody uh, sent me a short clip of these guys going into battle in the 1980s. And uh, they quoted this guy, uh, this gentleman who actually he himself was killed. I think he stepped on the mine. He was, he, he created the, the best documentary of the Iran-Iraq war, like several hours long. And um, he quotes him saying that so-and-so, his last name was Avi, says, you guys should, you soldiers of today, you young men should, should uh, pray that you become moderate in this war. And the guy asks the soldier, why did so-and-so say that? And he said, so-and-so said that because he said, um, some of you uh, will come out of this war and will you 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 will use your uh, veteran status to your advantage to become politicians to get the best deals in business and why you will forget everything that happened here and you will become corrupt. Some of you will uh, become. Uh, some of you will become, some of you will uh, survive this war and become just terribly depressed and you won't be able to live with everything that happened today. 
and therefore, and then there was a third group, and you will be sorry about everything that he did, and you will question everything. So it's better. And when I look at not just a place like Iran, but America itself, you know, I know veterans here. Like it's the exact same thing. You know, people come out of these wars. Some of them, you know get a lot of, you know, use the points of their veteran status to enter politics or business or whatever, you know, make a lot of money doing this or that, contract work, consultation. You know, I was thinking about that in Ukraine because I ran into this American vet who was doing nothing but good work, right? Uh, he was just a gentleman and he had just gone there to help. And uh, there were others that I saw who you could tell they were consultants and they were, you know, they were there to make money. And, you know, so it takes all of these kinds. I mean, in, in Iran, as in the United States, is the exact same thing. And, you know, I, I know Iranian vets who were gassed. You know, there, there's nothing like to, to see a man who was gassed to see the things they have to go through uh, on a day on a daily basis is just really, really pretty horrendous. Um, yeah, and it should be noted for for the audience: the Iran Iraq War was a terrible. I mean, massive loss of life. Chemical weapons were used. You know, mustard gas, VX nerve gas. Really, just like a, a terribly brutal conflict um, that, like you were saying, in Iran today, a lot of veterans still live with. Exactly. And, you know, I have friends who are veterans of that war, and some of them are exactly like this person said. Some of them are just depressed and not, you know, very healthy in many ways. Some of them, you know, are in government getting what they can out of their status. And sometimes I want to ask them, you know, when exactly, what was the, what was the exact day that you sold out? You know, what, what was the day you went from being, you know, a soldier fighting for your country to selling out? And some of them, um, there are these two, some of them will tell you that I have a friend, he'll say, like, the day the war ended, our whole, you know, our, uh, whole platoon or whatever, we started crying and we didn't want the war to end. And our uh, commander said, you idiots, you know, like if, if, uh, if you like war so much, let me divide you in two and you can fight each other. <laughs> you know, the thing that always gives me pause about war when you know I, I've seen people write about war or talk about war and I knew right away they didn't really know what they were talking about they'd never been in those places and anytime somebody will tell you a person will people will come out of the exact same situation uh, with the same uh, baggage they're wrong uh, and you know I talked about it in Saleh talks about it in, out of Mesopotamia. You know, in, in America, a lot of people talk about PTSD. And I've seen PTSD in the Middle East. But I've also seen men, as Saleh says in the book, I've seen men 
nothing touches them. Nothing, nothing you could do touches them. They're just, and they're not robots. They're not, they're not uh, devoid of feeling, right? Like, it just like they shrug it off. And uh, that's an interesting phenomenon to me. And, you know, I, I don't have an answer why one person acts one way or one person acts another way. But the thing about war is that people just come out of it differently. The way people come out of any situation differently, right? Yeah. Well, what are you, what are you hoping that when readers, when they read your book, what are you hoping that readers take away from it? The thing that, you know, I, obviously I, I had read many, many of the American war writers of the past and I quote them at some land, whether it's Hemingway or uh, the great Vietnam war writer whose name uh, Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien. You know, I, I, I quote these people through solid because I want my audience to know that, you know, uh, there's a respect there, right? There's a respect. Uh, I think I want the same respect in return. I want an American audience, a Western audience to come to come to this book uh, able or ready to go into these lives and see them beyond the headlines, beyond beyond the cliches of this Shiite militia or that guy or this guy did this. I mean in the book I even I have a woman based on a true person who goes around cutting off heads of ISIS enemy combatants, right? That person really existed. But I don't condone that. But I try to show through Sala how a person could get to that point. And I think the job of a writer is to show these complexities in human beings. You know, if evil is done, if goodness is done, why does, well, how does that happen? Why does that happen? How does a woman who's, you know, like I've told this story a couple of times before to people, I was, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan and I was talking to a, like the only therapist, Kurdish therapist who existed for this camp, right? And he said, you know, Mr. Salah, how, what, what can I, what can I tell a woman who, and they were talking about what ISIS did to them. What can I tell a woman whose husband has been killed in front of her? whose brothers and sons have been killed and their heads cut off in front of her, her daughters raped in front of her, she herself raped. Like, what kind of therapy can I give this person? Is, is such a thing even possible, right? And of course, the answer to me is no, it's not. There's, there's, there's a point beyond which that level of brutality and suffering, and you see it so much in some of these places, it's just, it's just that there's a no return point. So I think in this book, one of the things I was trying to say is that 
there are people who do really, really cruel things in revenge, right? Like, for instance, there's a chapter in out of Mesopotamia where they catch this ISIS, young ISIS guy from North Africa. And uh, Saleh talks about how they kind of brutalize them before they kill them. He doesn't condone that at all, and you know he actually suffers for it. But then quickly he puts that suffering away and goes on because, you know, revenge is a real thing. It's a it's a real uh, it's a real feeling. And if you're in those situations, and again, Saleh talks about it like we had we had gotten our butts kicked by these guys. You know, they had, you know they were like outside of the gates of Samara, and we had to hold them off. We were ashamed, we were beaten, and then once we started to fight back and, and chase them, the feeling was like we were hunters, it was like, and they were prey, and we loved it. And, you know, you have to be truthful about that. Like, you know, sometimes that exhilaration of, uh, of uh, revenge, you know, you feel it in your bones, and not every single person, soldier, feels it. Not every single soldier is proud of it. Most of them probably are ashamed of it afterwards. But when it happens, it's a reality. And for people who are not there, who weren't there and didn't live through that, to judge these people, whether they're American soldiers or whoever, it's, I think it's kind of unfair. I think it's kind of unfair. Well, Solara, this has been an incredible interview. We st- we didn't get to so much. I had a lot of questions about H about the interrogator, uh, who I thought was a very very fascinating character in your book. We can do it part two. Next What's time. that? We can do a part two next time. Yeah, we'll have to do part two. Well, thank you so much again for um, for 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 coming on. If you wouldn't mind, just lastly here, you've got a new novel coming out in November. Could you could you give our audience a little teaser for that novel? Sure. Uh, after Out of Mesopotamia, I thought I need to get away from war for a little while. And um, I started to, uh, COVID happened and you know, there wasn't much to do. And I started writing this book. And uh, I, I had really become uh, thoughtful and concerned about the situation of women and uh, uh, and people in Iran who do not uh, follow the standard sexual whatever uh, standards that are imposed on them in that country and many other places and I knew some of these people and uh, I, I thought uh, I have to start you know, I have to, I owe it to myself and also to to the act of writing, I guess, to actually do a little bit of research and find out uh, more about these lives. And so I, I spent quite a bit of time in the LGBTQ community with them. Like I, I made the connections and sort of they were gracious enough to take me into their lives. It was a very different world than out of Mesopotamia. But at the same time, it had many similarities because I realized that, you know, 
you know, we fight many fights in this life, right? We fight many fights. They're not always the ones that are the most obvious between countries and governments and geographies, but, you know, you have people in Iran and other places who are under, who are under the gun every day of their lives. Um, the, you know, the lives of women, it doesn't mean women are in, in a state of constant suffering in Iran, but they have to do a lot more to get by on a daily basis. Or if you're, let's say, a person of the LGBTQ community, you have to, there are, there are the psychology and just the complexities. And I wanted to understand that. And I wanted to write about it. And it also came from a personal place because I'd experienced in my own family, people who lived through these things. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, uh, and but most importantly, I wanted to write about all of this is to say, I wanted to write it from a, like a man's point of view, a person like me, who sort of uh, comes to this new paradigm we live in in the world where things are changing between, you know, whether it's sexual identity and whatever, and how does a person like me actually deals with that? Basically, the novel in one sentence is learning how to be a man, right? And uh, again, the person, you know, he's, he's had military experience this time in other places, and, you know, so, uh, so there's a little bit of that, but uh, and then once the you know, women uh, women's movement began last fall in Iran, uh, my my book was finished and in the process of being prepared for publication before all of that. So once again, I found myself having written about something that was sort of in the air, and uh, and then it just suddenly happened, and so it was an interesting. It was an interesting parallel to see uh, that uh, uh, that taking place, and that will be coming out in November. Great. Well, Salar Abdo, out of Mesopotamia, um, go pick up a copy. Go check it out from your library. Uh, what an incredible story! And um, Salar, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me here today. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope your podcast does great and gathers millions and billions of readers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>